It is quite an honor to say that I have with me the man who is the former national Greco-Roman wrestling champion. He aspired to the heights of becoming a member of the United States Olympic wrestling team. Yes, and of course, that's the man we all know as Bob Root. And welcome to the inaugural edition of the Wrestling Stoop Podcast here on the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. And of course, per the usual, I am Ray Russell. But joining me here this week is the true host of this show. He is a former Michigan State High School wrestling champion. And after a brief stint at Michigan State University, he decided to join the U.S. Army, where he made the all-service wrestling team. He would later return to college at Southern Illinois University with a record of 66 and 18 on the mat, including an amazing 16 and 3 record in his senior year. He's also a former national AAU light heavyweight champion. He even represented his country of the United States when he competed in the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City as part of the Greco-Roman wrestling events. After that, he made the decision to go pro in 1969, and never looked back. Yes, he held more than two dozen pro wrestling championships over his two-decade career in the ring. He received the Cauliflower Alley Club's prestigious Lou Thez Award in 2009. He was also inducted into the Tragos Thez Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame back in 2006. And even more recently, he was inducted into the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame and Museum's Class of 2019. And there's a lot I'm leaving out here, guys, but I'll leave that for him to tell you. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to his show, one of the all-time greats of the Territory Era, the legendary, the sometimes controversial, the incomparable, the one and only, Mr. Bob Roop. Bob, welcome to your Wrestling Stoop. Well, thank you, Ray. It's, it's really a privilege to be here. And, uh... I think that we've had the start of a beautiful friendship here. Uh, for you listening out there, we've taken a couple of months to get ready for this. We didn't just jump right in and, and uh, say, okay, we'll just start out and see what happens. We've been planning, and Ray has been doing a great job of setting things up, getting us ready to go so that once we do start, we can get our message or our, our work to you to share it, just so you can, you can share it with us. Thanks for that great buildup. It's very heady. It's very heartwarming to hear that. But at the same time, uh, I've got a little bit of a bone to pick here uh, that I'm going to just mention briefly. We'll get uh, to the details later, but uh, nothing that an old-retired wrestler likes better than sharing stories. But mm -hmm. some of them are, are, uh, are very meaningful. Uh, they have to do impacted my life and other people's lives. But one of the things going on right now as I just heard this morning, coincidentally, I heard a couple other wrestlers that were knocking me. I mean, I've been retired for 30 years, and they're still knocking me for something that happened over 30 years ago. 
And it wasn't like uh, something I got arrested for or put in jail for or in any way penalized for. It's just a difference of opinion. So I'm going to be answering to that, to those uh, accusations. I'll, I'll mention a couple of names. Uh, the people involved were Ron Fuller and Kevin Sullivan. And I'm, so that's all I'm going to say for now. Those out there who listen to the podcast probably heard my name mentioned by Ron Fuller a few times. So, But with that in mind, in spite of that nice introduction that uh, Ray gave me, I want to add a couple of things. During the time, uh, and again, it has to do with credibility toward my character. I've been retired for about 30 years. Uh, the reason I did retire was because I had young children, and I decided I wasn't going to be on the road and miss their growing up. So I went from being a, a full-time pro wrestler to being a Mr. Mom. And the 10 years I was Mr. Mom were actually the best years of my life. Uh, and they have paid off the fact that my two sons, that I was there for back then, we're still together. We're in a home together. They're in their 30s now, but we're still together. So, you know, I those years are, are paying off. I mean, treasure that I would never have gotten just from having some kind of pro wrestling uh, retirement fund, if there was such a thing. But with that in mind, talking about my own boys, they have to listen to this kind of stuff, too, about right. their name. Their name is Roop also. Right. And they have to listen to their name being dismissed. Uh, look at me and say, well, what's that all about, Dad? And, and so I want to repeat that in the 10 years I was Mr. Mom, when the boys were old enough, we got into scouts. And in the 10 years I was involved in scouts, I was a den leader. I was a cub master for our pack. My wife and I ran day camps during the summer for eight years. We had probably between 15 and 1,800 kids that came out for a day, uh, day camp. Uh, not not every year, but in, in total during those eight years. And I received, uh, I was honored to receive the, the highest awards locally, the Cub Scout of the Year one year, the, the Order of Merit another year, and the Silver Beaver Award another year. And those are the highest, the highest recognition you could get at a local level, like just from our Cub Scout district. Once the boys went, were both in school, I went back to school at age 63 to become a special ed teacher. And through three years of working full-time, I included taking classes in the summer, I became accredited as a elementary school K through 7 and special ed K through 12. I worked in that capacity for another eight or nine years. I had been sub substitute teaching up to that time, but I wanted to know what I was doing. And my own son had some getting a special education for 11 years, and I saw how much it had helped him. So I thought I could do the same thing and help other children. Mm -hmm. And I was the first 10 years uh, out of the business. I didn't pay any attention to wrestling at all, uh, not because I had any any grievances against it or anything. It's just I had, when you're in it, you're so active, you're so involved. You're in the bubble. That, <laughs> yes, you're in the goldfish bowl. <laughs> the bubbles is actually even better. Goldfish can get out of the bowl. <laughs> you know, you're in the bubble. You, you're right, Ray. You can't get out. So, uh, yeah, I wasn't real interested. I, you know, I was doing things with my kids, but uh, then all these Hall of Fames started coming along, and Ray, you guys are kind enough to mention a couple of them, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I had a short career. I was active 15 years, and I stayed around kind of promoting and doing some uh, hit and miss stuff. Uh, where Ole Anderson hired me as an agent for Ted Turner 
uh, at 90. I worked about nine months, and then it was taking too much of a toll at home. Uh, I had my wife and small child. My wife was was being frustrated by having to raise our son alone, so I decided to leave the business, and that's when the, the 10 years as Mr. Mom started. But in that 15 years of, of, of amateur wrestling, and well, actually 13 of amateur and 15 of pro, so about 30 years total. I think From you're amateur- cutting yourself on the pro, Bob. I think you went a little longer than that. But, yeah, I, I mean, 15 years strong on top, and I, I don't mean to cut you off, but I was just thinking about that when you – I didn't want to lose my train of thought here, and I'm, I apologize for cutting the Bob Ruboff, guys. So I don't want to piss your fans off, though, is what I'm saying. <laughs> I know I won't piss no. you off because we're cool. We've been – talking so much over the last couple of months we we just kind of we you know hit it off right away you kind of yeah. think the way i yeah. think and you say things that i'm thinking and it's really cool that way but i just wanted to point out real quick and that was what i wanted to touch on too right at the top of the show was for anybody who thinks this is just going to be a program about your career i mean it's so much more than your in-ring career you did so much behind the scenes you were so involved as a booker and as you said an agent a lot of people including myself i wasn't even aware for many many years that you were an agent in WCW back in that 1990, that Jim Hurd era, if you will, with only uh, yeah. booking and things of that nature. So that's pretty cool as well to find that out. You, and you've told me at least one story. I can't wait till we get to it one day, a backstage incident, <laughs> uh, you know, involving Lex Luger. And that story's out there, but I think you maybe have a little more detail than I've actually heard this story being told in the past with Lex Luger and a little incident up north with the junkyard dog. So but there's just so much that people don't yeah. understand that you you know the the people not just the wrestling in the ring or or how everything worked behind the scenes but you you have really big insight into Eddie Graham Gordon Soley Dusty Rhodes the Funks the Briscoes you talk about listening to that JYD pop down in Mid South there's just so many great stories coming Bob well thank you and I agree there's a lot of stuff but what what you're touching on is something that relates to me when I was in Charlotte a couple months ago we did a we did a seminar of um, myself, Kevin Sullivan, uh, Steve Kern, Jerry Briscoe, and Brian Blair. And we did a seminar on championship wrestling from Florida. And they had a moderator who was, uh, they had maybe 100 people in there. And we had a moderator that was asking questions about, first about Gordon Soley and then about Eddie Graham, or maybe not in that order, back and forth. But the point was, they kept talking about everything was so great. Eddie was so great. He did this. He did that. Gordon was so great. He did this. He did that. While that was all great, that's all fluff stuff because you're overlooking the fact that Eddie Graham killed himself. He shot himself. So everything wasn't all great, was it? And Gordon Soley was a very unhappy person. And a lot of people never saw that. But Gordon was a miserable person. And I had a chance to, you know, to experience some of his misery firsthand. It was directed at me. And so, and again, I'm not knocking these guys because they're gone. They're gone. And I'm not knocking them. I just read uh, the Soli Chronicles written by his daughter Mm -hmm. uh, about a month ago. I read it and uh, I wanted to find out no more about Gordon. And she says everything that I'm saying. She said that he was very unhappy with childish upbringing and how he, you know, he lost his father. Really, he never knew his original father and his stepfather was nasty to him. And anyway, I can validate the things I'm saying. I, I know his son, uh, Gennard. I don't, you know, I like Gennard. I respect him. I don't want to hurt his feelings. But I think it's a tribute to me that the wrestling fans come to these reunions and they seek me out 
even if it's, it doesn't matter if it's not a thousand of them, if it's five or one, the fact that they seek me out, I feel like I owe them more than just platitudes. I think that they want to know, they know about what they saw on TV. Mm-hmm. They know about what's in the pictures and all that. I think they want to know what's going on behind the scene. And that's where the really important stuff is, because what you saw, what you saw on TV and in the house shows was icing on a cake. And that cake was not always made up of like, you know, like chocolate pudding or whatever. That cake was sometimes made up of stuff from the sewer and just some <laughs> absolute crap that it bears watching. Uh, one of the things that never comes up is that wrestlers from day one always complained, always complained about payoffs from promoters. Sure. Yeah. And uh, in my career, the only promoter that I thought paid me fairly was Paul Bosch. Okay. Every other one I worked for, I felt like still owes me money because they didn't pay me fairly. <laughs> and even, what I even, did, uh, even Sam Mushnick, I heard he was a pretty good payoff guy. When I worked, I worked just a couple of shows in St. Right. Louis. Not too much in St. Louis. Sam, Sam wasn't running at the time. It was somebody okay. else. And that, I don't remember if that payoff was fair or not. And I maybe I shouldn't include Sam, but you know, Sam got me started. So I have sure. I have a lot a lot of time for him, but. You know, he was in effect head shill, head shill for a, a racket. So sure, the NWA, yeah, president, longtime president of the NWA. Well, right, I got you. Well, well, think about it, Ray, and you folks out there. <laughs> uh, the football, NFL, and the, the national the NBA and Major League Bas- Baseball, they all have charters and rules and regulations. Right. <laughs> uh, for an organization at one time that actually was drawing more people because they ran year long where these other sports are seasonal. Right. Wrestling was drawing more fans per year than any of these other sports on their own. And so and yet with no regulations, no rules, no, uh, no bylaws. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't set buildings on fire or anything like that. But uh, only civil law. There were no regulations about what you did. There was no uh, arbitration on pay, or it was illegal from the from day one for, <laughs> for them to treat to treat wrestlers as they treated you as an individual uh, proprietor, in, rather than the contractor. Nowadays they call it yes, a contractor. Right. right. You thank you for for correcting me. Uh, yeah, individual contractor as opposed to an employee. As an employee, they would have had to pay for uh, workman's comp for you, and they would have had to given you medical insurance. Right. And the, the definition of being an employee was if the person in charge told you what to do. Well, they told us everything to do, everything. You got to be here at a certain time, be there, do this, go out in the ring, do this. They told you everything to do. Mm-hmm. How are you a, a private contractor when someone else is telling you exactly what to do? Right. So they managed to avoid that all those years. They went before uh, the National Congress for uh having a monopoly, monopoly. Uh, yeah, a, a few times. So, you know, there was, that's, that's led to all kinds of, uh, of like, un, unseemly practices. Well, let's look at this way. The building uh, down there on Albany Street in Tampa where Championship Wrestling from Florida was housed, housed that, was, that place was called the Snake Pit. Right. I mean, yeah. That's that's not considered a positive positive naming. That, it truly was. It, some of the stuff that happened in there. I can't but, wait till uh, we get to that. There's a lot, a lot well, of things went on in that place. Probably some you can't ever repeat. But <laughs> look well, forward to the stories you can tell. Uh, it, I think that I can I, I couch my language in such a way 
that I can almost <laughs> tell a complete story. Okay. Uh, yeah, one, I just wanted to repeat that you mentioned a couple Hall of Fames, uh, mm -hmm. Pro Wrestling Hall of Fames. The one, the, the Tragus Fest Hall of Fame is for both amateur and pro wrestling. You have right. to have been decent at both. Mm -hmm. And they're also affiliated with the National Wrestling Hall of Fame. The, the Tragus and Fest Hall of Fame is at the Dan Gable Museum. Dan Gable, for those of you who might not know, or, uh, well, there's no reason all of you should know, but Dan Gable is probably the best uh, wrestler this country's ever had, amateur wrestler. He, wa he won a 72 gold medal in his weight. He wrestled six matches, including against two former world champions, never had a point scored against him. Uh, one of the best wrestlers ever. So to be in his Hall of Fame, uh, Hall of Fame Museum with his name on it right. is a real honor. And then the, that Hall of Fame is also associated with the National Wrestling Hall of Fame in Nor Norman, Oklahoma, which takes care of all wrestling, high school and college wrestling in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, all amateur wrestling, and the fact that they would have an organization that half of or everybody in it worked as a pro wrestler is, is truly telling. I mean, usually amateur amateurs wouldn't come anywhere near the pros, so that's a real honor to be there. But I'm also in my high school, my college Hall of Fame, and in the National AAU Hall of Fame. And the reason I'm not bragging, the only reason I'm telling you this, and the reason I mentioned my private life as a, as a father and a, as a member of our, you know, as a Cub Scout leader, as a member of our society, is towards my character. I don't think a person with low character could achieve these things. I just don't think that people would reward me with Hall of Fame memberships if I was a low, a scumbag. I just don't think so. So, uh, okay, enough said. <laughs> now we can move on. What, what should we talk about now, Ray? Well, I mean, we can go anywhere you want to go. We'll start from the beginning here in a little bit, too, because I have a few questions about early on. Uh, but before we do any of that, I, I also wanted to go back just really quick, and I'm not trying to bring this up or anything like that, but you were talking about the NWA, the Monopoly, and all that uh, that good stuff, and you were talking about Fuller and Kevin Sullivan and things, and then you were talking about all of the things you did after wrestling. People don't even realize that these guys exist after they retire from the ring. Some guys can't let it go. Some guys just never look back. And Bob, I think you kind of really never look back to some degree. You still respect and appreciate the time you had on the road and, and all of your college, you know, the, the, being, being in the Olympics back in 68. I mean, my God, not a lot of people can say they did that, you know, representing their country in the Olympics. So, I mean, you've done a lot of things outside of professional wrestling, but it just kills me because you, we had this big plan of attack, how we were going to address everything on the first show, how we were going to begin the first show. <laughs> And then you got about 9.30 a.m., I get this text. <laughs> and, and to quote uh, my good buddy, the late, great Tracy Smothers, another former pro wrestler, uh, you sounded about half hot. Tracy used to say, I'm half hot. Everything made him half hot. And you sounded half hot. I'm like, oh, my God, I've been talking to you, like, constantly for two months. I've never even heard this side <laughs> of you before. You dropped an F-bomb in a text. I'm like, oh, my goodness. And so I was like, how are we, how, how we going to – what's this first show going to be about now? Has everything changed? Yeah. And you, you, yeah. you had a little bit of time to cool down, but you addressed it and things of that nature. And basically what upset me about it was to know the Bob Roop now, and I'm assuming from the last 30 years plus, uh, for people to dwell on things that took place 45 years ago, still to this day, or tell it their way, instead of maybe opening their eyes and seeing that, you know, we all, as we age, we all, you know, hopefully mature and we can see things a little differently or from other people's perspectives. But it's like, you you know, we talked about this off air, and I'm sure we'll get into it when we get there. But it's like, 
you weren't the only one involved in all of this, but somehow you became the bad guy in all of this. Like you led everything and you forced yeah. everyone to do everything that they did and yada, yada. It's just funny how the narrative turned to that. And you know, it, it breaks my heart because I know what kind of a, you know, person you are. I, I can't say back then, but I know, you know, what, who you became after wrestling. And clearly, like you said, that was a good point too. You had all these years, you, you worked hard in high school and college and you made it to the Olympics. I mean, you're a focused human being. And so for everybody to just look at it and, and I went on YouTube, for instance, there's a, there's a couple of people that like to get these interviews with these former wrestlers and their entire point of existence is asking them controversial questions. They want the hits, right. they want the ads. So right. it's right away. Kevin Sullivan's on Joe blows podcast. I won't say his name. And the first question, the only question is, uh, tell me about the Knoxville Five, the, that whole situation back in the late 70s in Ron Fuller's territory in Knoxville, where you guys, you know, a bunch of you guys decided, hey, we're not getting fair pay. We're going to go try to do our own thing over here in the same city. God forbid you can't do that. They own that city, right? Monopoly, you were talking about. But right. they, it's specific to your name. All these other guys, you know, and some have passed away. I'm not trying to, you know, no derogative, you know, but. Ronnie Garvin was involved. Bob Orton Jr. was involved. There were so many other guys involved, guys that had been in the business forever. Ron Wright even kind of jumped over there, and he had knew the Fuller family forever. Um, the, the great Malenko, Boris Malenko, you know, he, who had been around the business for quite a while. So it wasn't you know just Bob Roop that did these things, and that's what kills me too, is that it's just you're the bad guy. And I start reading the YouTube responses. Bob did it to himself, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, <laughs> what? What? Like... These stories are told so much that nobody really knows the actual facts, the whole story behind it. I'm not talking about this is my version, this is your version. I'm talking about everything that came out of it. And maybe at the end of the day, people can believe who they want to believe when the story gets told here, but at least they'll have enough facts from your side that I'm hoping that they go, okay, I kind of see that now. You know, yeah. and, and they can still make their own decision. Maybe they're just a Fuller fan. Maybe they're, a, you know, whatever, an NWA, you know, for life type fan. It could be whatever. I'm I'm just saying at least, you know, when you tell from your side, at the very least, maybe they'll come out of this going, oh, okay, well, he w wasn't doing it with, like, trying to just destroy, you know, the other promotion or whatever the case may be. Just trying to do your own thing. So I just, I wanted to get that out of there because it kind of upset me after it upset you. So, and I know some of those right. interviews are a little old, like a year or two old and things like that, but still just. Not very cool. Just seeing some of the responses, people just, they never bothered to spend the time getting the entire story. They just listened to one narrative. And that's the, uh, sadly, that's the main narrative that's out there. And unfortunately, and I'm going to end here so I can let you tell your story. This is the Bob Roop show after all. Um, the, last <laughs> thing I, show. The, the last thing I wanted to say was I went back. The first thing I did when we decided we were going to do this was I watched every interview you had done, every shoot interview, every, you know, shoot interview is what I'm talking about. Not kayfabe promos, but right. I, I went and everything I could find. So you did Briscoe and Bradshaw recently, but I also went back. You did a couple of couple hours shoot interviews, about four hours worth at the very least. And I just listened to all of that because I, I wanted to integrate that into all the research I was doing. That's when I go back to this one text. You sent me one sentence one time and it made my day. It made my, it, it made, I mean, I was going to do this show anyway. But it was, I was like, okay, we are definitely on the same page because what you said was, I want to tell my story completely and accurately. And that's what I'm, I'm, I'm all about is accuracy. So I'm glad we're going to do that here because some other people, maybe some names you've already mentioned, like to tell stories that they remember 
And you can easily go back and see that those stories are not true. I'm not saying they're lying. Maybe they just remember it that way. But, you know, that's not going to happen here. I want to be very clear with everyone. Anything we do here is going to be completely and accurate. And that, you know, that's what this show is going to be all about. Well, that's a good point. Um, You know, and to give, uh, give credit where it might be due, maybe some of the stories that are being told are are presented only from one point of view that they don't have the information that I have. They don't know where we were coming from. Now, Ron Fuller, that's not the case. He knows why I'm here. And you mentioned uh, Ron Wright a minute ago. Ron Wright and I became buddies. He had uh, been there. He'd worked for five or six different promoters. And Ron was a guy that was working back there in the days of live TV. And Ron told me stories that when he and his brother uh, worked as a tag team. They did live TV. When they worked on the, a TV, uh, they would pack their bags. Uh, once they got dressed for to wrestle, <laughs> they would put all their civilian clothes uh, in their bags. And as soon as their match was over, they'd run out to their car and take off because they got such heat in their match. Again, it was live. People were seeing it as it was happening. That if they stayed there, the first time they stayed there, uh, they had a hundred people drive down to the TV station, <laughs> waiting, outside, waiting outside with baseball bats, waiting for them to come out. It took them all afternoon to get out of there. So they had to get the police come out, get a escort out of there. So after that, they, uh, they would just, they'd run out of there real quick and get out of, get out of sight. Well, you know, so Ron, Ron had been there a long time. He knew right. what was going. He's, he's the one that pointed out to me in a couple of towns that money was being, handled inappropriately i'm not going to say thieving stealing i'm going to say inappropriate money accounting for uh the money that was coming in right and i saw it myself i saw it with my own eyes in two different towns and i went to i went to ron fuller with it he denied it so he does know where i was coming from and so he uh, he never mentioned that he never mentioned, you know, one of the problems I have with Bob Roop is he came to me and accused me of being inappropriate with the money. With uh, He never mentioned that. If he'd mentioned that and said, well, I denied it and, you know, it absolutely wasn't true, he's never said that either. And you're talking so about I think Ron Fuller here. He Ron, Ron Fuller. Fuller. Now, yeah. that, that's that's kind of an important item, don't you think? Well, that yeah. My, <laughs> motive, my motivation was that, that my beef with him was that I wasn't I – w- I was getting, as a booker, I was getting – a percentage of every house. So if he, if he, uh, say not he, let's say that somehow five thousand dollars every week was un- unreported. In other words, it wasn't accounted for. It was just taken out in a paper bag in cash. Say, well, my percentage uh, of that five thousand dollars was two hundred fifty dollars. So if I'm getting cheated out of two hundred fifty dollars every week over a month's time, that's a thousand dollars. Over a year's time, that's $12,000. That's serious money. And, uh, and plus, we were the one earning it. Ronnie right. Garvin, uh, Boris Malenko, and I were like a brain trust. And they were the two brains. And I, and I was trusting them. I was a booker. So, but I those guys both had years. Malenko had 20 years more experience than I did. And Garvin had 10. So with my eight or nine years together, but the three of us came up with these great programs that were really, I mean, we did stuff that just excited everybody. We were selling out everywhere. And, uh, you know, so that when you're selling out and your pay doesn't go up, doesn't go up that much, 
uh, you it's know, noticeable, that, that, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, very noticeable. And again, Ron was the one that came to me and pointed it out. I saw it with my own eyes. So, uh, uh, Ron, Ron Wright, you're talking about. Yeah, now, uh, yeah, Ron Wright. Not well, we Ron got two Ron's in the story. I just want to make it clear. Right, right. For those who don't understand what Bob's talking about, real quick, Bob, just for those who may not know, uh, the reason you refer to you guys as the brain trust is because Ron Fuller is actually running two sides of a territory. So he was up in Knoxville. But he's also down in like what Pensacola at the same time. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, and he wasn't even in town uh, three or four days a week. And we were running these shows. I wasn't having to go see him at all until uh, you know until these uh, improprieties come up. He would come to Knoxville because that was we did a show there locally. So he would be there for that. But I still ran the shows when I was Booker. I mean, he didn't interfere with that. Uh, I had a program going but again. It wasn't me. It was. Malenko and Garvin had these great ideas. Ronnie had been a booker up in Canada. They did all kinds of wild stuff out there in right. French Canada and yeah, uh, Montreal. And, yeah, Montreal and uh, with the Rizio brothers and all that. So they had some great ideas. Malenko had years of experience as a heel. So these guys had great, great uh, input. I was able to kind of wrap it together. And sometimes I didn't have to do anything with it. All I had to do was just make time it, uh, what we were going to do on Fit it all into, you had, out of every hour on TV, you had 48 uh, minutes and 50 seconds, and the rest of it was, was 60 minutes of commercial time, and I had to figure out how to get that and the matches and the interviews all into that, that time, so it was just, I was just kind of a chore choreographer, I guess you'd say, and I, I mean, I did have some ideas, but those guys had some great stuff, so, you know, we were a brain trust. Bobby was not, Bobby Orton Jr. wasn't really uh, keyed in that way, and uh, Slater, Dick Slater was with us too, but uh, he was Orton's buddy. I didn't know him that well, and we'll Always get like wherever that. Orton wound up, Slater was there at some point as well. Those two guys, man, uh, I yeah. can only imagine. <laughs> yeah, well, well uh, yeah, that's that's another story. But yeah. uh, I think that uh, again, going back to uh, wanting to reach out to the the people who have shown interest in my career that come up. I, I still think it's one of the funniest things uh, uh, to be at a reunion where someone who doesn't know me walks by and I'm shaking hands with a guy and uh, his son or his father standing next to us and he's shaking my hand and smiling, got both hands on mine and going, oh yeah, we used to hate your guts. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he's shaking my hand with a big smile. <laughs> we used to hate your guts. We hated you so bad. And, you know, it's a big compliment because they were talking to my work as a heel. And that was my job to make them hate me. And uh, but, you know, now, of course, they understand what the business is. And oh, another thing that I want to make a point here, uh, one thing that they mentioned, Fuller mentioned, was this, this tape, this plan B mm -hmm. did not come out. It did right. come out. It did come out till a year or two ago. Yeah, I don't think I he never, was aware of that. I, I saw him do an interview or something, or I think he was wondering how it got released, but it really wasn't released. Somebody did release it, but it wasn't like it, it never aired on TV or anything like that. But again, no. even though you 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 know, there's more than just you on that video, it just seems to go go back to you like you for you held a gun. I'm not saying figuratively, you held a gun to everybody else's head in that interview apparently because you're the only one that gets name dropped when, when he talks about that. Right, right. Well, shall we go? Uh... Well, why don't we go to me, me starting out in the wrestling business? I think it's, I think it's interesting. Uh, Eddie Graham, let's put it, I was getting ready to graduate from college in 1969. 
And I'd been, the Olympics had been uh, the summer before, the fall before. And I came back, I had two, two uh, semesters left to school to graduate. I was graduating in June. I was looking for a career. And I wrestled that year in college, my senior year. Mm-hmm. I was team captain that year and uh, voted team captain by my teammates, which was an honor. And when I was looking for, you know, I'm graduating, I'm going to need an occupation. One of my teammates came back from Christmas break. And he said, hey, I ran into a pro wrestler, a guy named, you remember Larry Hainimi? And Larry Hainimi, I had remembered him from the 64 Olympic tryouts in uh-huh. New York. Now, this is 1968. And he said, yeah, I, I said, he's, he's big. He's, uh, he was driving a Cadillac. He's got bleach blonde hair. He had on a diamond ring, a nice coat, nice clothes, with a Rolex watch. And uh, I said, yeah, really? I said, what's, what, what's with that? He said, well, he's a pro wrestler. Uh, he got into pro wrestling. And I said, really? I thought, huh, pro wrestling. And they said, yeah. He said in two years, he made $75,000. And that part was okay. But then he said, and he's been to Japan twice, and he's been to Australia twice. When I heard that, I said, "Uh uh-huh. Because (laughs) coincidentally, we had a team trainer that the year before I spent a lot of time with. I had a bad knee, and he was was giving me therapy every day. He would ice it down and, uh, you know, do some treatment on it where I got to know him pretty well. And he kept telling me about, he said, you know, you'd be, you'd, you'd be, if you're interested in pro wrestling, he said, I know Sam Muchnick. I know a guy named Sam Muchnick. I don't remember how he knew him, but he, he, he did. He said, I can call him and set it up. Maybe you go talk to him. So he had been telling, he had told me that the year before. So once I heard this thing about Larry Hainimi becoming Lars Anderson and going right. to Japan, I was going to say, yeah. make sure you, everybody knows who luscious Larry Hainimi went on to become, one of the Andersons, yeah. Uh, well, he worked was, here on, as Larry Hainimi early in his career in the Cleveland area for uh, Pedro oh, really? Martinez and Johnny Powers and things. Yeah, I think he was even really? part of that early uh, IWA stuff as well. But, you know, obviously he was, became Lars Anderson. So, But, yeah, he worked here some. I, it was before my time, but my father remembered him So as the, under that name. So I just, I always found it uh, amusing that, you know, somebody my, my father knew from the Cleveland Territory, which was a territory at the time, guys, unfortunately, right. you know, it folded pretty, pretty abruptly, pretty quickly. After, after that, you know, he would go on to become much more famous as Lars Anderson. Well, he, think about it. Uh, Lars and o, uh, o, Ole Anderson and Gene Anderson were a top tag team. And once they started a six-man tag, a uh, six-man tag thing started taking off. You know, it's like uh, it was tag teams had gotten, you know, just everybody was used to it. So the six man tags, well, once he was put in with them, he started making main event payoffs right away because nobody was making that kind of money. And at the time, maybe the champion, the NWA champion and the very top guys. But anyway, uh, the trainer set me up for an interview with Sam Muchnick, which was about 100. St. Louis was 110 miles away from. Southern Illinois University, where I was going to school. And uh, a teammate of mine who, I was the Greco-Roman heavyweight in 68. He was a freestyle heavyweight in 1968. Both of us, uh, he had already graduated. I was about to graduate from Southern Illinois. One of the uh, most notable that a small school like Southern Illinois could provide the heavyweights for an Olympic team for both freestyle and Greco-Roman. Right. It's, it's pretty telling. Yeah, that's no crazy. school, Oklahoma, none of the Oklahoma schools or Iowa, none of the great schools ever did that. So uh, that was noteworthy and a great coach we had. Well, uh, Larry, uh, 
Christoph was this guy's name. He was second in the world. This guy was tremendous now this, amateur. This is the guy you went down there with to go meet with Muchnick, Larry Christoph. <laughs> Right, okay. and it was Sam had Sam Muchnick had a an office. I don't remember what the building was, but he had his office. Uh, he had all kinds of awards and plaques and things from his being a newspaper writer and uh, the other things that he had done. And so we go to, to we've got a meeting with him. We're going to talk to him, and one of the first things he said was, uh, he said, "You're a college graduate." He said to Larry, and he said, "And you, Bob, you're about to graduate." I said, "Yes." He said, "Well." If you guys are, I wouldn't get a pro wrestling if I were you. This is the head of the NWA, the president, telling two guys that are Olympians right. that he doesn't think we should get into pro wrestling. So I found that strange, but I, <laughs> you know, I, I shrugged it off. Anyway, he set us up. He said, "You, I can." There's two promoters that like amateur wrestling: Vern Gagne up in the Minnesota area, and Eddie Graham in Florida. Well, Vern had I quite, a, up, quite a background himself in amateurs. Yeah, he was an alternate. He was a national champion. He was an alternate on the Olympic team. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was. He was terrific. He was a great amateur. I never, never got to know him. Uh, I saw, I talked to him one time. We were both in the Tragos uh, Fez Hall of Fame, and I later on, I, I, I got to talk to him a little bit. But he was, he was uh, in his senior, senior years, having senior moments at the time. So okay. uh, it wasn't. I don't know if he would, uh, if he. Well, he's gone now, but I, I I know his son Greg, and I like him. But uh, I didn't anyway, mean, I didn't mean to make you lose your train of thought. You were talking about Vern and Eddie Graham. Sorry. No, I I got it. Uh, thanks. Uh, yeah, I grew up in Michigan, you know, and I walked to school in seventh and eighth grade in the snow. Uh, so I didn't want to I didn't want to go up to Minnesota and and go to work <laughs> Florida. I went to spring break my senior year. I went to Florida and I liked it. So I said, well, why don't you call the guy in Florida? So he called Eddie Graham. He talked to Eddie. We didn't talk to him, but he did. And uh, we were having a tournament about, uh, I think, a month later uh, in Detroit. Uh, it was the last tournament I was ever going to wrestle in. It was a, a 1969 uh, National AAU, which is the Amateur Athletic Union, Greco-Roman National Championship. And Larry and I were both, uh, both entered. I, I cut down to 220 because I kept having to wrestle Larry, and Larry was about the only heavyweight in the country that could beat me, but, you know, he did. Uh, he could. It was always close, but he would beat me one to nothing or two to one or something. So I cut down to 220. I hadn't won a national. I'd been second, third, fourth. I was five-time All American, but I'd never won a national championship. Well, this was my last chance. So I cut down to 220. And uh, anyway, wrestled the tournament. I won, and... Eddie Graham said he was going to come to this tournament and we would meet, he would meet us there. I don't think he ever got there while I was wrestling because I would have seen it. But I, I left after my match uh, in order for me to, to win. Mm -hmm. uh, there were one more match had to take place. And I was so nervous about it. If, if it went a certain way, I wasn't going to win. So I was so nervous about it. I went. I went across the street and got a beer. I think I'd been cutting weight for three days. So when I came back, I found I I had I had earned the championship. And Eddie was there with Buddy Fuller, one of his uh, partners in his business, who was the father and, of Ron Fuller, ironically. Father of Ron Fuller. Eddie was uh, boy. You talk about flamboyant. He was tan. He had that bleach <laughs> yeah. blonde hair. Yeah. Really colorful clothes. He had a big gold watch with a big gold 
his gold watch band had like silver or uh, gold coins, you know, like the gold pieces. Right. And his watch band, he was just flamboyant as it could be. And wrestling is pretty conservative, really, amateur wrestling. So at the banquet that night, the awards banquet, I was sitting at a table with Eddie and Buddy. I was thinking, you know, he really stood out. It's like those movies if they, if they where they show something, one part of it in Technicolor and everything else is black and white. That's what it was like sitting there with Eddie. And uh, to my surprise, the guy in charge of the Detroit Athletic Club that had sponsored this tournament was also the president of the National AAU for wrestling that year. He was uh, the head guy for uh, AAU wrestling. And they they don't have, they don't stay there forever. They they take his, but he that year he was a president, so he was a big wig. And I mean he was a well known name. His name was Dean Rockwell, and so I'm sitting there and waiting. And Dean Rockwell, so I want to thank somebody in our audience who's been a real friend to uh, amateur wrestling. If he had not contributed, uh, we not we might not have been able to have this tournament uh, here today. I want to announce Eddie Graham. I mean, I could have fell over. I mean, I thought, my God. So Eddie stands up, and they everybody gives him a big hand and everything. Well, think about it from my point of view. Here's a guy in, from pro wrestling uh, who is like another universe from amateur right. wrestling. Sure. But he, he's getting this tribute from the head guy in this amateur wrestling thing as somebody that really, you know, it's the only person that, the Secretary of State for the state of Michigan was there to give the awards. He didn't. He didn't give him a big plug like that. So Eddie got that big plug, and I thought Eddie was legitimate to me when I went into it. Right. Which was bad. Uh, <laughs> that, that's not a good thing because his because his credibility he had a lot more credibility than he should have had with me. But so uh, you knew of Vern's amateur status, and it seems like that would be the easy go-to for you. But Florida, it sounded better. Well, the nice hot Florida sun sounds a lot better than the cold barn up in Minnesota. I get it. And then this solidifies it for you then, Eddie Graham being put over by the amateurs. Right, right. And, and, he, and you know, he was friendly, and Eddie was a con man. Uh, it was any, any good. <laughs> well, he's a promoter. Any good, well, any good wrestler isn't a promoter is even better because if you're conning a bunch of con men, you got to be a really good con man to con the, con the conners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and but you know the other thing was uh, Sam Mushnick had mentioned that Jack Briscoe was was one of the stars down there in Florida. And I knew of Jack. I had never met him, but I knew right. of him. He was a national national. He was an NCAA champion at one ninety one. Right. I'd uh, been years before. Uh, I'd been in service at the time, I think. But anyway, I knew he was there. Dale Lewis was there. Uh, Dale was two time Olympic team member. So there was, you know, there were some great amateur wrestlers down there, and I, I felt right at home once I got down there. But yeah, so that's how that's how I got started in Florida, and you know, once I got there, uh, they started training me, and uh, I, I I should tell you about my first shoot in the ring because it was an absolute <laughs> abortion. Uh, I, well, now before I, we get to the ring, because I want to say that remember now this isn't just a shoot interview. We're not just here for two hours. We're here for years. So I want to hit on everything. So I okay. want to ask you a question before we get to your first match, because people are probably like, damn you, Ray. <laughs> he was going to tell us about his match. We'll get there, guys. I do promise, Bob, we might even get there right after this. But you talk about training. What was training like? I'm not asking you if they made you do squats. I'm not asking you if they showed you how to do this or that work. 
I'm just curious back in these days, because they were very tight lipped about, you know, there's a lot of guys that have told stories like I didn't even realize it was complete work until I got up there for my first match or until I saw this or I saw that. When they brought you in and you started training, what how did training go? Did they tell you right from the get go? All right, this is what we're going to do so that it alleviates the actual pressure from the arm bar or whatever the, the case may be like. What was training back then for an amateur like you? Well, that's, you know, I'm really glad you asked that question because it takes me back to Eddie Graham. One of the things that I said about having more credibility with me than than he should have, if I had been like a little bit leery, like he had no connection to amateur wrestling, and I said, well, okay, I'm in a completely different business here because it was amateur pro wrestling had nothing in common. Right. I, I would have been uh, less susceptible to to any kind. What Eddie did was he talked to me like pro wrestling was kind of a noble a calling. We were going out there and we were providing entertainment and suspense and drama for our fans. And we were giving people, you know, a chance to blow off steam by vicariously and you know, all these things that made okay. sense. It's like almost, Bob, what you're going to be doing is like this noble endeavor. Uh, you should be really, you know, you should be really, which I didn't mind that at all. But, uh, now, something else that was going on, once I got down there, even while I was training to become a pro wrestler, I started working out with, there was a wrestler at the University of Tampa. He had been a national champion, a small college national champion twice, but he was a 191-pounder, and even when he was at full weight, he probably didn't weigh over a 210. So I worked out, I went over to work, he was getting ready to, to go to some kind of tournament, or he, he needed one somebody to work out with. So Eddie found out about it, and he took me over there. I went over to the Tampa uh, University to their their gym. They had a big wrestling mat. And I worked out with the guy a couple of times. Well, I weighed about 270. And, you know, I'm just fresh from the Olympics. And they, so the, the, the input or import of me being 270 was I had the strength that went with that size. And this kid at 210 had a hard time doing anything to me. I could defend myself from him very easily. So that left him just one option, really, was what I could do to him. And I was able to, I had a bunch of, I mean, I was good as, as a freestyle wrestler, too. I took third, Nick. I took all of, I was all American in that at the AUs a couple of times. Uh, it's just, again, I had I had that Larry Kristoff. He was my nemesis. I, you know, whatever tournament I was in with him, I never could beat him. You know, I mean, when, to his credit, he not only was on six or seven World Games team, he actually went on to become a coach of the national team that went to the world games. Now, Larry, so he was, was he deterred like after Sam Mushnick, that conversation, or did he actually go try to train? Did he have a first match or was he just, yes. Turned, okay. I was just <laughs> curious. <laughs> we went, we went down. I, thank you for taking me back. Cause I got a step. That's right. It's like Eddie, I said, we're here forever, man. So we're going yeah. to hit everything. Okay, good. Hope, hope you folks out there are, are bearing with us here. Uh, I'm I'm old. I'm 81. My brain still works, but uh, maybe not as well as it did 50, 25 years ago. Uh, Eddie brought us down to Florida yeah. for a, a look-see. Okay. Uh, come on down. He flew us down, not first class or anything, but he did fly us down. He paid for it. And, and Larry and I flew down, and we flew down to the matches in Tampa. And the uh, first time I ever went to a wrestling match, so we were standing. They didn't want us in the dressing room, and I don't, I don't blame them. Uh, so we stood out 
Uh, it's a Fort Homer Hesterly Armory. Right. There's a balcony and there's a railing at the balcony. It's a great place to watch the matches from. And we stood out there and watched the matches. And a couple things I noticed uh, that that were of import to me mm-hmm. was that even when, like one during one match, uh, Mario a wrestler name he was a manager at that time named Mario Galento. Oh, what a character! Out, <laughs> yeah, what a character. He, he had a he, boy, he could heat. He had a cane. He went out there and he did something. He smacked, he poked somebody with that cane uh, when they were hitting the ropes. He hit him in the back or poked him in the back. And I thought the I thought the audience was going to tear him apart. He, they, you know, he was he had cops over there protecting him. Uh, but even when everybody was going nuts, I noticed the cops. They weren't laughing, but they were kind of smiling. You know, right. they weren't because what what you just saw was assault and battery. When he poked the guy sure. with a cane, <laughs> if we do that in the street, you go to jail for that. You get away with a lot of things near the wrestling ring, that's for sure. Well, <laughs> you know, so what I, what I said to myself, well, of course it's not real. You know, I mean, the cops are, are laughing, laughing about it. I mean, right. I, didn't think, I didn't think it was, but uh, I know that you can't hold a guy by his wrist uh, unless you know serious hand pressure holds, the nerve, nerve endings and that. You can't hold a guy by his wrist even if you got two hands, you can't hold a guy by his wrist if he wants to get loose. I mean, you can't. You can't do it. Amateur wrestling, you know, even Hodge with that grip of steel uh, couldn't hold somebody. So, uh, you know, you could get free. You had your other hand, you poke him in the eye or, you know, you kick him wherever. You, you could get free. So the guys that would get in these holes where they were just held by one arm, I looked I looked at that. I said, well, that, you know, a lot of this stuff wasn't possible. So I knew it was, you know, I knew it was a manipulation. But in a business, of course, called a work. But uh, and that didn't bother me. Okay. I wasn't going to go in a business where I was going to get up, beat up for real every night. I mean, who would want to go do that? <laughs> right, right. You know, so, and, you know, and that was fine. You know what? It also gave me this. I want fans out there to understand this. I had the utmost respect for what those guys out there were doing. Why? Because I couldn't do it. I don't care about being an Olympian. That didn't transport. That did not carry over to pro wrestling. Right. All it was was it gave me credibility. But what credibility do I have if I get in the ring and I stink? I, I can't get you know I can't get out of my own way. People say, "Hey, go back to the amateurs, pal. You ain't cut out for the pros." <laughs> So uh, I had utmost respect for everybody who had was in that dressing room was had, was higher up on my pecking order than me. I was at the very bottom. That's the way I looked at things. You hear that, yeah. workers of today? You hear so many guys breaking in now. Just teach me how to take a bump. Teach me how to hit the ropes, and I don't need anything else. And here's here's an Olympian, literally an Olympian, in Bob Roop, and a national AAU champion coming into pro wrestling and saying, hey, I'm totally aware that I've never done this before, and I don't care if this guy over here, maybe he doesn't have a college degree, maybe he never wrestled in amateurs, but what he's doing is something I don't know how to do, so I'm going to keep my mouth shut and open my ears and learn, and that's 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 very important, and it's, it's very cool that even though you have the background you had an amateur, you realize this is a different animal altogether, and I, I, I know one thing is I don't know anything yet. And I'm going to learn from all these guys. Yeah. Yes. And the other thing I realized was that uh, in the ring, any one of those guys could make an absolute fool out of me simply by doing nothing. Yeah, sure. Because I didn't, all they had to do was do nothing. If they didn't help me, I, you know, and this was even after I learned to work, 
you know, after, I mean, I, I learned how to, to start learning to work. You don't learn to work till you get in the rank. But once I got even to the point of getting in the rank, if I didn't have a guy, uh, and that's something we'll get into later on, but the guys I worked at and the, some of the guys I worked with when I first started, I had great matches with, and other guys who were bigger and stronger and nastier looking than these than someone else uh, would, uh, like Frankie Kane was 5'8", 5'9", 180 pounds. I had great matches with him, and then I go against someone else who's six foot four and 280 pounds and have lousy matches with them. And so uh, I learned early on it had nothing to do with what you look like. It's, your, it's you know, what kind of ability you got in the rank. Frankie I'd work with, he had that Mephisto gimmick uh, with the loaded boot and the mask and all that. Mm -hmm. He had actually people, he had people worried about my health, that I was going to make it through the match alive. <laughs> and, you know, and I took that as a real, you know, it gave me credibility. Sure, even, when he, even, when me, even when he beat me, people would say, good match, Bob, you almost had him. You know, I had credibility. Right. I'd, I'd beat other guys who were lackluster, you know, and just didn't have it. Uh, and I'd, I'd go go back to the dressing room almost with my head down. People would go on, ah, you know, you're lousy. You need to get, go back to amateur wrestling. You know, you, you suck. And, you know, nobody wants to hear that when you're trying to get over. So uh, yeah, I learned to admire that guys like, you know, it's what you know. It's not what you look like. So you and Larry uh, fly down. You get this look-see. You see this Mario Galinto. Are you guys talking to each other like, look at this, man. Do you see this? I, I mean... How is that conversation going between you two when you see these these shenanigans going on at ringside with Galento and things? Are you guys maybe going, uh, is this for me or is it not for me? You seem to be interested. Is this where Larry kind of goes, eh, I don't know about this, or does he show up for training as well? Good question. And thanks for getting me back on course. Larry and I watched the matches. Actually, Larry worked, you asked earlier, did Larry work a match? Larry worked a match that night. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, uh, they wanted one of us to work, and I don't know how I didn't. I wasn't sure I wanted to, but uh, they, Larry, Larry actually looked better than I did. He was older. He was more rugged looking. He was, rug, you know, and he had, he had a bigger reputation. Okay. Uh, so they picked Larry, and Larry got some tights and boots somewhere. He went down and he worked against a masked wrestler. I wish the heck I could remember his name. Gordon Nelson? Gordon Nelson. Oh, okay. thank you. Oh, yeah. What a team we make. Uh, Mr. Already, wrestling already. Gordon Nelson. Not not, yeah. not Tim Woods, but the other Mr. No, Gordon had Nelson. The, had the white mask. Yeah, Gordon Nelson. You and I are a great team already. I, <laughs> I had tried and remembered his name the other day. I remembered he was he's married a, he's to He's one of those unsung heroes of the era. He was a true, he could shoot a little bit there. He was, he was a shooter. Yeah, he could shoot. Well, I don't know if he was mad at uh, Larry Kristoff or having to work with him or what, but Larry went out there. He didn't have a clue what to do, so he was listening to Gordon. And Gordon had him do a couple things that were – and Gordon was a heel. Um, anyway, he had Larry – when he put Larry in a hold, he had Larry go for the ropes, which, you know, a babyface shouldn't do. I mean, you know, if you're brand new, and plus Larry was uh, – looked like Larry was about 50 pounds heavier and had a solid muscle. Although, you know, that, that wasn't that big a difference. I mean, guys, you didn't have to be big. I mean, Louis Tillette was working then, and Louis was small and terrible shape, and he, you know, he had credibility. It didn't matter. It wasn't what you looked like. It's what what you had conveyed to the fans about you. you know, right. Little guys can be tough. You don't have to be big to be tough. So one of the toughest wrestlers I ever knew was a 115-pounder. But, uh, yeah, Larry went out and worked a match, 
afterwards, we were staying at a hotel uh, on uh, Dale Mabry Boulevard, and Larry and I had a, shared a room. And Jack Briscoe was uh, delegated to kind of chaperone us or host, you know, be kind of a host. And he took us back to the room, and uh, we were supposed to ask him questions and everything. And uh, Larry asked him a question. Uh, oh, I left something out. Before we went to the matches that night, uh, Eddie took us down to the Tampa Tribune, and we met with Tom McEwen, who was uh, one of the head sports writers there. And uh, they took some pictures and did a did an article on us being there. You know, two Olympians uh, right. down there was fairly unusual. They were smart to Eddie, you know. Because I was going to say, it looks like Eddie's trying to help you guys out, but really it's just bolstering championship wrestling for Florida at the same time. Of course. Yes, credibility. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we've got these two Olympians that are coming down wanting to get involved in our business here. Yeah, it gives serious credibility. And they were credible. He, he you know, when Eddie was sober, uh, the year, all the years he was sober, the wrestling business had very high uh, credibility. Right. That's why, that's another thing we'll get into is why he hated, uh, he hated the little fly by night. Uh, so-called fly by what he considered fly by night promotions. The outlaw were, promotions. Well, you know. and the wrestling, the wrestling schools, the wrestlers who would have oh, school okay. would smart train guys and smarten them up, and then send them over to Championship Wrestling for Florida to get a job. That's another story uh, about a shoot with Danny Hodge, uh, Cosro Vizari, Billy Robinson, uh, myself, Bob Orton Jr., all brought in to to work out with one poor kid that oh, just graduated. that sounds just terrible for the, I I can't wait till we get there, but oh. I already yeah, feel hard. sorry for this kid listening to yeah. some of those guys involved. Ziri, you know, another great amateur in his right iron cheek. If people that don't know that his real name, and of course you and, and uh, some of the other names. Who else did you say in there? Billy Robinson. Oh my uh, God, that he was, was working down there at the time, and <laughs> yeah, uh, oh yeah, Overkill. I mean, you know, you but some kid the size of Andre the Giant who was a NCAA champion. It might date five of us, but. Uh, uh, not for this poor kid. He weighed about 180 pounds. Uh, he had been trained at a local school and come over thinking he could get a job, and they were going to discourage the hell out of him by beating the crap out of him. I didn't have anything to do with it. I just happened to be there for a few minutes, and I watched what was going on. And basically, the the guys um, – well, let's, let's save that story for later. Sure. I got I'll uh, earmark it right here <clears> in my notes. I can't wait to, to get there. We're going to tell everything kind of in order. We, we might sidetrack here and there, but, yeah, we'll get back on pace. But can't wait till we get there. This poor guy. I'll put that in my notes right now. Poor yeah, guy. For, <laughs> are you kind of listener out there, please do bear with me. Uh, my story well, you get excited. Have... You remember something. I yeah. mean, I'm putting it in my notes so we don't forget it. I, absolutely, man. Because I can't wait till we get there. But it's a nice little teaser. People, get, I promise, guys. You know what, Bob? Let's let's make a pact right now. Episode two, we're going to tell that story so people aren't waiting to see when it happens. We'll, okay. we'll make sure we fit that in next time around, guys. Um, okay. But for right now, you if you're you know we'll get back on track here. So you go down there, you talk to the local newspaper, the writers, and it's so cool that you remember all their names and things too. It's so adds so much more detail to the show. But so here you are after the show, Gordon Nelson, who was now you know I'm thinking. Maybe he was like a Mr. X, a Dr. X, something along those lines yeah. there at that time. Uh, he, he probably goes in there and has his way. Not that he, you know, Larry couldn't handle himself in, in the amateur world, but you're in the ring and the pros in front of all these these people, and he probably did show him up a little bit, or, you know, maybe he had, he had a rough night, rough go of it. But it's all over, said and done. You're back at your hotel room, and Jack Briscoe stops by. 
I don't well let's go back to the ring for a minute. I don't sure. think uh I don't think they put Gordon over. I think Larry either they went, went ten minutes through. I don't oh, think okay. so. I think Larry I think Larry beat him somehow, or maybe he got DQ'd. I don't remember. I know they weren't gonna beat Larry. Okay. Uh so, so uh Larry anyway, maybe maybe that's why Nelson was a little salty with him. Maybe he knew he was <laughs> he was doing a exactly. job to this guy who had never wrestled in the in the pros exactly. before. Could have been. Exactly. But you know what? That's your job. Sure. If it you're is. a wrestler, that's your job. Whoever I I did jobs for female wrestlers, I did a job for a female midget. <laughs> so wow. you know, uh, I'll add that to my notes I, as well. <laughs> or little little person, right? Uh, I put over in the ring. I, it's, I, it's a work. Anyway, I mean that's your job is to be good enough to do that and keep your keep some credibility, right? But anyway, uh, one of the things that Larry Jack Briscoe, I think he drove us because we didn't have a car. I think Jack drove us in his car to back to the motel. Okay. And he came in. It was a Tuesday night, and it was Tuesday night. It was party night for the wrestlers over at the the lounge over there. Everybody went to okay. uh, Imperial Imperial Room, I think it was called. And uh, <laughs> oh. yeah, that was a big hangout for everybody. And Jack was probably eager to. Maybe not. He had a girlfriend. Maybe he was going home. But anyway, he asked if we had any questions, and uh, Larry. Uh, he asked what we expected to make, and Larry started out, said, oh, I, I wanted to start. Now, this was 1969. He said, I'd like to start with uh, making $40,000 a year. That would be the equivalent of about hundred grand a day in, in, in $1969. Oh, probably, turn, pr- probably turn well, spent, well over turn, that. Maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe even more. Well, Jack had just gotten his first break, and I don't know if he'd made $40,000 a year yet there in right, Florida. Right. Now, he did. And he went on to be champion where he made some serious money. Right. But, you know, Jack probably his first year, he might have made 15 grand. The second year of 20, third year, 22. You know, he wasn't making that kind of money. Plus, you're on the road all the time. You're really earning that money while you're learning that you're learning your trade. So when Jack heard that, you know, he wasn't disgusted or anything. He realized we were marks, but uh, he just said, well, you know, I doubt very seriously. Now I had heard uh, Lars Anderson's story from my teammate, but I wasn't I wasn't in it for the I wanted to do it. I didn't care about the money. I wanted to travel. So I was gonna go. I was convinced I was gonna go in. I had a degree. I could always fall back on my degree. If things didn't work out, you know, if I didn't like it or it rejected me or whatever, I couldn't make it. I had a degree to fall back on, but I was gonna give it a try. That story about Lars Anderson talking about going to Australia twice and Japan twice in his first two years in the business, that caught me. I said, yes, that's what I want to do. And that's what happened. I mean, I, that worked out. So, uh, yeah, I was going to go. But Larry, when he heard that, when Jack discouraged him, he said, no, you won't make, you know, you'd be very, very lucky to make that kind of money anytime. You know, it'd probably take you a few years. Uh, Larry went back and, and uh, he had a coaching job. Uh, he was coaching wrestling at Southern uh, University. Southern Illinois University uh, had a branch campus at Edwardsville, Illinois, and Larry was coaching the wrestling team over there. He went back to that, and it was good. He did. He was a great coach, and mm-hmm. like I said, he ended up coaching the World Games team. It was funny because last year I was inducted into the uh, Southern Illinois Hall of uh, Southern Illinois University or Athletic Hall of Fame for wrestling, and I went to the uh, awards banquet, of course. It was kind of cool. They uh, they had a football game that day. It was in the fall, and uh, at halftime of the football, we went out on the the field, and uh, or maybe it was during a break, but the game was being televised. 
So we went out on the field, all the Hall of Fame inductees, and we stood there and were introduced. It was kind of cool. You know, it was the first time back to school since I graduated in 69. I'd been gone all those years. Well, Larry was at the banquet that night, Larry Kristoff. And I hadn't seen him all those years. I hadn't okay. seen him. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so I recognized him. I mean, he didn't look quite, they weren't near the same, but I could recognize him. And I sat at a table with him. We talked and, kept, and we caught up and everything. But what I noticed, I got inducted. Larry and I were both on the 1968 Olympic team. I got inducted into the SIU Hall of Fame in 2022. Larry got inducted in the Southern Illinois Hall of Fame in 1988. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, 34, year, 34 right. years earlier than me. Well. I, I, I told that story when I, was, when I gave my acceptance speech. <laughs> I said, look. I laughed at it then, too. I said, uh, I guess his career might, might have been more illustrious between me and Larry. He got inducted 34 years ago. It was a way to put him over, because if I hadn't, if I hadn't had him uh, to work out with, I never would have become a pro wrestler. I wouldn't okay. have been good enough. Right. Uh, I, I never would have had the option. I wouldn't have made the Olympic team. So, uh, well, that's cool. I mean, you, maybe you ran into him all these years later, though, because I was going to ask you, do you know what happened to Larry? And there you have it. Oh, he's yeah, he's still there. Seems to be he's a farm boy. Uh, yeah, I was literally still on a farm. I, I think he owns three or four of them now. He's doing real well. Okay. But he's a, you know, he's a, a completely different kind of guy than me. I don't know if Larry's ever, uh, he might have had a beer. I know he's never had a joint or any kind of drugs or anything. And, you know, you get in a pro wrestling life, and that's something else we'll talk about, the semi side. Mm -hmm. But it's it's something that people should know about. If, you know, the fans that go to the trouble of coming all the way across the country to a, a get-together, fly in, drive in, whatever, come in to talk to you and want, and want to find out what you're doing now, I say, like, going back to the talking about Eddie Graham and Gordon Soley at that seminar at, at Charlotte, Charlotte, and, and never talking about behind-the-scenes stuff. Just, right. oh, yeah, he was the greatest announcer and the greatest promoter and all that. No, there's another whole story here. What was really going on? You know, that's, we're talking about what you saw on stage. What's behind stage? Behind stage is that big theater with all the dressing rooms and all the, all the rigging, you know, about 25 people and the support crew, you know, the gaffers mm -hmm. and the, uh, the stagehands and all that, the costumers and all that. What's going on with them? And I think that's what people want to know, and that's what I want to share, because that was what was real. What, what made it happen? It wasn't us being out in the ring. What got us in the ring? How did right. we get there? So that's what we're that's where we're going to be going down the road. So, uh, okay, where was I? Larry, Larry, we uh, what we flew out the next day, and Larry decided not to go into it. I'd already I'd already committed before I even went down there. I knew I was going to try it unless something horrible happened, but it didn't. You want to ask me, you got anything you want to ask before I go any further, Ray? No, I'm just, uh, you know, you answered pretty much some of my questions I was going to ask you. So it's kind of okay. where, right where we need to be. Larry moves on. He decided not for him, but you decide this wrestling thing. It's for me. You stick around and you're going to travel the world. And really the next question I had for you, and I don't know if it's going to tie into where you're going next was just getting started. Uh, some of the guys that maybe you got in the ring and trained with down there, in that snake pit, I'm assuming, I don't know if Eddie Graham was getting in the ring himself and showing you anything. I, I'm assuming he had some other guys doing that. Maybe the Briscoes down there or something along those lines. I don't think Hiro Matsuda was doing anything like that yet, was he? Not 
quite he was involved, but not like that. I'll I'll get to that in a second. Uh I I remember the guy I trained with almost it seemed like every day was Sputnik Monroe. Wow, there's and another all, name. Yeah, all he was doing, he was teaching me like how to tie up and the headlock and you know, just uh get me used the basics, just to be able to get around the ring and get, uh, hey, getting in and out of the ring, uh, you know, you better know what you're doing. Or you'll, you'll, if you don't, you can trip over that second rope and sure. fall into the ring on your face. Yeah, you need to get used to the ring. A ring is a is a snake pit. That's a snake pit right there. The ring right. will, ring can cripple you if you're not careful. Right. So you get used to the ring, what the canvas feels like, taking bumps, hitting the rope, hitting the rope will leave bruises on your side until you get used to doing it. Uh, you know, you, you you build up that area or you learn exactly where to hit the rope so it doesn't get it you don't get any any meat or muscle in there. But uh all that takes takes conditioning to get to get used to. When I retired, about six months after I retired, I got back in the ring to work out with I think Ron Simmons or somebody, breaking in Ron and maybe just Ron, but uh I did some of that stuff, showed them how to hit the ropes and do some other things. Next day, I was sore as it could be. I was sore, <laughs> like I'd been beat up. You, you need to learn a, your way around the ring so you don't get hurt. Uh, you know, and then what you're learning when you're working out with another man or whoever is so you don't hurt them. It's not only not hurting them. You have to be able to deal with them in a way that allows them to do what they need to do. In other words, you can't get a headlock and have it on so tight the guy can't move. Right. Uh, he has to be able to move and wave his arms. And, you know, if you're squeezing so tight, he's going to grab your wrist. He's going to grab your right wrist with his right hand and your left wrist or your left elbow with his other hand from around your back to loosen your grip. And nothing's going to happen as long as you keep trying to squeeze his head like, like a pebble. So right. <laughs> going to be able to so work. It's a work. Yeah. Guys. Yeah, yeah. You know, when guys are, are young in the business, they don't understand that that's what you need to do. You need to, uh, you, you have to tell a guy, look, I'm not going anywhere. You don't have to, you don't have to hold me like you're worried I'm going to try to get away. I'm not going anywhere. Let me take, I, I don't want to cut you off, Bob. I'm sorry, man. Um, that's all right. Let me take you back to, back to Sputnik real quick, because he's pretty well known, you know, obviously throughout history, he didn't really make it to the TV era as far as videotape goes. So there's very little of them that's out there. But a very well-known guy. But when Sputnik was in there showing you all the all these things, was was he pretty cool to deal with, or was he just is he just was it like a job to him? Was like, all right, kid, this is what we're doing, and and, and have a good day, and that that was the end of it. Or was Sputnik was he helpful in getting you into the actual wrestling ring in front of the fans? Did he get you prepared? Oh, he, was, he was great. He was great. Well, I, I rode with him. I when I started working, I rode with him. Sonny Kang, a wrestler named Sonny Kang. Uh, was now he didn't train you, did he? Because <laughs> no, no, he was part of our group. Uh, he Sputnik and Sonny and I. Usually Sonny or I would drive, and and Sputnik would ride in the back seat. But he would school me uh, and him, Sonny a little bit too. Sonny was green, I think. He would school me on in the car. Tell he would tell me what I did later for Lex Luger, but he would school me in the car. He would be telling me, you know. Uh, psychology and you know why you're doing certain things and mm -hmm. yeah i hung around with him during the day too i'd go over and uh you know i was trying to you know assimilate wrestling as much as i could and hearing stories but sputnik oh what a character he came, he came over from the carnival right um <laughs> he wrestled on the carnival at the athletic show and uh, he told me a story that how one time 
he took on 16 sailors, one after the other. And uh, the way the Astro worked is that uh, they would have a, a tent, and they'd have a ring, a wrestling ring in the tent, and uh, there'd be a stage out front, and the barker, the carnival barker, I think sometimes they call him the gaffer, would be out there with a microphone, or like, you know, a hand you know, amplifier, right? And he'd be he'd be trying to get people to wrestle, and you'd have a wrestler too, or a boxer, maybe both, out there, and uh, you know, anybody that can beat them, if you beat them, you get twenty five bucks. If you if you last three rounds, you get twenty five bucks. Whatever they'd have different, uh, they right. would have different uh, incentives. You try to get uh, somebody to to take the, the the bet or the the you know try for the prize, and then everybody had to, that wanted to go in a tent and watch had to pay a quarter nickel whatever they charged. Uh, back in those days, sometimes a nickel or or a quarter, you know, was equivalent to like a couple bucks today. Uh, but Budnick, there was a group of sailors. He told me about one that one time that. He would uh, he he would insult would insult them one after the other, <laughs> and uh, he ended up taking all sixteen of them one at a time, and there and he never you know he didn't cripple anybody, uh, you know he didn't break anybody's bones or anything, but he would he would put some kind of submission hold on them and make them give up, and uh, and then you know and then shake their hand and all that he uh, he wasn't vicious until the last, until the last guy <laughs> I think he put him out uh, yeah he was a real character. And he had a he had a, a a real rapport with black fans and uh, black folks in general. Yeah, he played a big uh, part was, in segregation there in big cities. He, yes, and you know, and he was oh, he was a sweetheart. He just he didn't have a prejudice bone in his body. You know, the guy was a good man. He had some personal problems like all of us do, but he was a he was a good guy. He was a good mentor. Good guy. Well, uh, you got you got in around a lot of showmen. I mean, you were watching Mario Galento at ringside. Eddie Graham is uh, the promoter here. Spudnik Monroe, for as tough as he was, he was the Cadillac and Diamond Ring man as well. So all these guys, outside of just being tough or whatever you want to call them, Sputnik included in that for sure. But they're all showmen too. So you're getting that aspect of the business if you're if you're watching these guys. And like you said, you were you were stepping back and learning from these guys. Talk about a showman. Sputnik, Sputnik talked, told me a story, another story about working with Danny Hodge. He said he was working with Danny Hodge, and Danny was, Danny was smart to the business, but he was so conscious of his image as a great amateur, one of the right. greatest. I mean, they named the NCAA Most Valuable Wrestler every year at the tournament mm -hmm. the Danny Hodge Award. Oh, so he's one of the greatest ever. Right. Yeah. So Danny was so he was a junior champion out there in Oklahoma where he lived for for years and years the junior world NWA junior world champion at 220 and Sputnik was working with us so he was working with him one time and he hit him with a gimmick or something you know I mean the Danny Danny went down like he was like knocked out <laughs> uh -huh. so Sputnik Sputnik made the mistake of strutting he's strutting around the ring meanwhile Dan, Danny's <laughs> laying there on his back watching that and Sputnik said he, he got too close to him, and Sputnik reached out and grabbed him around the ankle. And Sp Danny, Danny, one of his gimmicks was his grip. He would do things like break, squeeze apples to where they would, you know, right. they would just pulp an apple in his hand, which yeah. tried that sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It's very difficult to do. And he had this grip. And my, my understanding was that he was a genetic anomaly. He had 
double tendons in his that's hand. What I, that's that's what I've heard. I don't know if that's just the story yeah. that goes around or whatever the deal is, but man, yeah, I know, I know he had quite a grip. Yeah, so he would he grabbed Sputnik by the ankle and he squeezed, and Sputnik said he's standing there flapping his arms like a flamingo. He's yelling, "I quit! I give up! I give up!" He's standing there. Danny Hodges is laying on the canvas like he's knocked out, got him by the ankle, and Sputnik is the one that's screaming, I quit, <laughs> I give up. I mean, to me, that's a funny story. Oh, I it's can, a great story. I, and it's, it's a story that would have been lost in time if it wasn't for you telling it right here. And that's, that's another thing I wanted to get over on this first episode, so I'm so glad you told a couple of Sputnik Monroe stories because this, story, this show is not just going to be about what Bob Roop did in the ring. It's going to be about everything you witnessed behind the scenes, all the different characters and people, and the stories they told you and shared with you. I know you went up and down the roads with guys like Ronnie Garvin and such over time, but uh, it's great because I didn't even know these were coming, these Sputnik Monroe stories, and maybe some more will pop up over time as well. But man, so here you are. You were an amateur. You you were a Greco-Roman Olympic wrestler. I mean, you've done it all in the amateurs, and then here you go over to the pros. You meet with Eddie Graham. You buy the hype. As far as, uh, you know, the, the promoter Bark goes. And here you are. You've decided, unlike your buddy, Larry Kristoff, this, this is, uh, is going to be for me. And you stay down there. You get trained by some of the best. Uh, <laughs> uh, Sputnik, great stories. Can't wait to talk a little bit more about him, hopefully. But I feel like this is a good way to wrap up the first episode, Bob, because I feel like at the beginning of the next one, we're going to start talking about your time in the ring. And we'll also touch on that story about that poor guy who had to step in the ring with the likes of Billy Robinson, his company as well. I promised that to you. So I'll make sure we touch on that too next time around. But Bob, I think this is a, probably a good time to call it quits for the first episode. Wow, right? Time flies when you're having a good one, isn't it? Absolutely. So yeah, many more to wow. come. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. So, all right, guys. Uh, you guys can actually find Bob Roop over on Facebook. Adam is your Facebook friend. He's not super active over there. Maybe we can change that a little bit, guys. But make sure you uh, you get a hold of him and, and let him know how you feel about about this uh, first episode. Um, that's going to change. I'm going to I'm going to be a lot more active in the future. And as always, guys, you can follow me on Twitter, or now it's called X, thanks to Elon Musk. You can follow me on X at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R A S S L I N Grenade. Also, I'm at Facebook.com slash wrestling grenade please get a hold of us if you have any questions about this time period or any time period in regards to bob roop's wrestling career or anybody he may have interacted with um looking forward to doing uh more and more episodes in the weeks to come lots more going to come out guys so just stay tuned bear with us there'll be more about the knoxville five the fallout in knoxville all of that good stuff in the weeks to come no rush on any of those stories we're going to try to go in order again we may get sidetracked but i love a lot of the stuff we talked about here this week, I had a lot of notes, a lot of research done, but you you had me taken off guard by a few of the stories you had to tell. I didn't know about them, so I'm I'm glad uh, you know you added those to the show. Well, thanks, right? And folks out there, thanks for listening. Well, Bob, I want to thank you one more time for doing this show with me. You got a hold of me a couple months ago. You said I like your work. I think this, you know, this could work. We had a couple conversations, and I just feel like everything you were saying was exactly what I was thinking. I felt like maybe it was vice versa too, not just in business, but also in, in personal life. So it's right. just a, a great connection. I'm glad, you know, you got a hold of me. I got a hold of you and I'm glad everything's working out. And we finally got here. We didn't want to do this until the time was right, until we were hundred percent ready. I know you had a little cold. I was dealing with the, uh, I want to call it walking pneumonia, I suppose. Uh, I'm getting over it. I'm almost there. And uh, here we are. So uh, looking forward to doing this again next week. Yes, guys, we will be back each and every week. Once again, with the wrestling stoop, with the legend here, Bob Root. Bob, thank you once again for being here. 
My pleasure, Ray. Thank you. 